Well, good morning. Welcome to our uh, Advent preaching series, uh, Christmas Unwrapped. And uh, again, if you're a visitor, can I extend my welcome to you as you visit us here at Crawley. We're going to be looking at the Christmas story. Thank you. Can I take you, before we do that, because we will be looking at something that happened 2,000 years ago, can I take you back, not quite as far as 2,000 years, but still in the dim, uh, dim distant past, take you back to 1970, to December 1970, and a small uh, school hall in South London where uh, a nativity play is being enacted. This, by the way, is the height of my acting career, because I have the auspicious role of being the second king. So let me me explain the scene to you. We have decking, very similar to this decking, actually, uh, and this is, uh, these are the hills outside of Jerusalem, okay? And uh, I don't think this is stage left or stage right. If it's this way, it's stage left, isn't it? So exit stage left, or enter stage left, come the three kings, at the hills outside of Jerusalem. And the immortal lines, I remember, even though it's again in the dim distant history, the first king, we even have stars, the first king points at the star and says, Lo, the star that has gone before us. That was his line. I'm the second king. Do you know my line? My line was, and we have followed its light from afar. You know, if there were talent scouts in the audience, this could have been the beginning of my Hollywood career. The only problem was it didn't quite emerge that way. That was what had happened in rehearsal. On the night, the first king, a friend of mine called Tony, gets to the hills outside Jerusalem, points at the star, manages to trip on his cloak, tumbles off the decking, a.k.a. the hills outside of Jerusalem, and ends up in an untidy heap at the floor at the front. Uh, Second king, myself, and third king, whose name is lost in the midst of history, rush to his rescue, pick him up, bundle him into the nearby inn for some first aid, and again, I'm really not sure if we ever made it to the manger after that or not. Um, But that was the school play, that was the story of the three kings, a.k.a. the 1970 nativity play, at uh, Sheringdale Primary School. You're all regretting you were not there for that wonderful event, were you? We are going to be looking at the three kings this morning. We are going to be unwrapping the Christmas message. Because whether you are intimately familiar with this, and whether, as uh, my generation nativity plays, were the story of Mary and Joseph and the three kings and the shepherds rather than dancing Easter eggs or grasshoppers or whatever nativity plays are now, uh, whether you were intimately uh, enthralled with the, the Christmas story, or frankly, whether this is new to you, whether the images of stables and donkeys just seem to be odd things that adorn the front of Christmas cards at this time, regardless of your, your knowledge of the Christmas story, This is an important thing for us to look at at this time. And we're going to be unwrapping it. It's it's a remarkable story because there are so many perspectives, so many different angles that we can look at. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the three kings this morning. I'm going to leave it to Steve and to Danny in the weeks ahead to look at the angels and the shepherds. But, But there are some wonderful contrasts here. We have the wise men... Uh, called kings in some translations, but wise men is more accurate. I guess by their very name, 
we kind of put them at one end of the intellectual spectrum uh, towards the wise end. Uh, and we have the shepherds who are perhaps a little bit more common, a little not so aware of global, indeed cosmic events. There's a great contrast there. We have the shepherds who are, who are kind of earthly and uh, just symbolise the, the, the ground and the world we live in. And there's this contrast with the angels, these heavenly choirs, these miraculous stars whose light we have followed. There's this heavenly perspective that comes crashing into this story as well. And there's the upheaval, just the social tension of a, of a region, of a nation on the move as everybody returns to their hometown so that a census can be taken. No mean feat in a time without reliable mass transport. A nation, a region in upheaval. A town, a tiny town bursting at the seams now because so many people have returned to that town because that was where they were born. So many people with their own story, their own narrative, their own views, and yet behind a nondescript inn in a tiny stable, the most wonderful narrative in all of history is unfolding. There are incredible contrasts in this story that we are going to unwrap over the next couple of weeks. So turn with me, please, if you have your Bibles, to the second chapter of Matthew. would encourage you to bring uh, your Bibles so that you can read along the story yourself. But if you haven't, or if you prefer to, to watch it up there, uh, the words will be up there. But just reading this, this passage that's, that's known to so many of us from the beginning of Matthew uh, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they worshipped, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thank you, Father, for this word. Thank you for this story uh, that is so precious to us at this time. Just pray you'd help us now uh, with our understanding of these words. So, three weeks to go. Three weeks to go. Are you one of those people that, that have the, the tree up the decorations up, the, the presents bought and wrapped. Uh, for some people, Christmas is already wrapped up. Or maybe you're a person that says, ah, we've still got three weeks. 
The, the shops are open Christmas Eve. What better time to go shopping? We, we've still got 20 days. We'll worry about it in a little while's time. And, and probably there's folks in, in all kind of uh, positions in between. But it's, I'm sure, as you well know, last-minute shopping is not a good idea. If we want to find that, that special gift, that, that perfect gift for the person that means something special to us, that isn't something that's left to the last minute. Gifts are important because they say something about the person that they're being given to. Well, good gifts are important because they say something about the person that they're being given to. And it's fair to say at this time of the year, as you look forward to unwrapping some presents in a few weeks' time, there's those presents that perhaps are not quite so appropriate. That jumper from Great Aunt Agatha in two sizes too big, in a colour that you never wear, that you have to smile at and say, thank you so much. Uh, I think since I've been 15, and again, we're talking of the dim depths of history now, um, my mother every year has given me uh, socks and gloves, uh, along with some other things. Um, they've not always been appreciated, I guess, certainly when I was 15. I think I've come to appreciate those more. Uh, I managed to lose gloves with alarming regularity, and uh, you can never have too many socks. But, but nevertheless, there are those presents that we look at and say, that's perfect, and those presents that we think, I'll smile and uh, do something with that when, when no one's looking. So as we consider the wise men this morning, as we unwrap this part of the Christmas story. Let us actually unwrap their presents. They bought presents, they bought treasures to Jesus, to the manger. What do those presents tell us about this child, about this one who was born? Let's start with the first gift, gold. That's probably the easiest one to understand. That's something that probably hasn't changed its meaning and its value down through the years. It's a valuable metal. It's a precious gift. It's a gift that is appropriate for a king. It's a gift that is appropriate for a king. Our pictures of uh, uh, kings and queens are uh, gold crowns, uh, gold palaces, uh, beautiful, ornate settings. And we read of that in Scripture. When, when we think of what does a king mean, what does a palace mean, what does gold mean throughout Scripture, it means a king. It means a royalty. Uh, back in 1 Kings, when we think about Solomon, who was one of the, the great kings of Israel, it says, And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And then also in 1 Kings it says, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. None were of silver. Silver was not counted as anything in the days of Solomon. I wonder what Solomon would make of um, plastic disposable cups. All the drinking vessels were gold because nothing else was considered worthy of value. It sounds like a pretty neat place to visit, doesn't it? It seems a pretty neat place to dwell in. And that was gold. That was the value of gold. And so what this king, by his first gift, is saying is he's saying, here is a king. 
There's something very prophetic about this, to be able to see beyond the straw and the manger and the sheep and the donkeys uh, and a king with his legs strapped up because he's fallen down the hills, to see beyond that and say, here is a king. Here is one who is born to rule. But it's interesting that, that Jesus never proclaimed to be an earthly king in that regard. He never claimed to to want gold, to want temples. In fact, he had to tell his disciples time and time again that that this wasn't the person that he was. In John chapter 18, it says, Jesus answered to some of the many questions he was given. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is looking at another kingdom. So when we look at this gift, has this first king maybe got it wrong? Is he, like everybody else, looking for somebody who will, in later years, rise up and drive out the Romans, restore the nation of Israel? Is this him prophetically saying, well, this is what I see you doing in years to come? Or maybe he is seeing beyond even that to a spiritual kingdom, to a spiritual rule to a spiritual leadership. But there's something else about gold that's very important. Something that makes it important for us right here in the 21st century. We probably don't come to church with too many crowns. I guess there's some gold on our fingers or in our ears. But what makes gold precious these days is actually the fact that it doesn't change as a metal. If you think about a little bit of science here, if you think about um, electricity and making electrical connections, one of the things that's really important when you make electrical connections is those connections are pure, that there aren't any impurities that can corrode and prevent the flow of current. So if we were to do a poll here and say, where's the gold in this room? Then yes, there's probably some on our fingers and ladies, some in your ears, but if we were really looking for gold... There's probably some in the AV desk, in the mixer desk at the back. Hi, guys. Have you got any gold back there? I'm sure you have. In the connectors, the the equipment surrounding me here. I'm not sure if we've got gold connectors or not, but I'm reliably informed that those are the best type. Because gold doesn't corrode. You see, iron will react with the air around it to form iron oxide, which is rust. Silver will over time tarnish and become discoloured. But gold doesn't. It's a very inert metal. And that's actually why you can wear it quite comfortably without it kind of contaminating and changing. It doesn't change. The the science bit is that the gold atoms don't actually react with other atoms very easily. And that's why it doesn't form compounds. Gold is unchanging. And so when we think about this gift that this wise man is bringing. He's also saying something about this child, that in the midst of a changing world, here's the unchanging one. Here's the one that is going to be constant, that's going to be true, that isn't going to change with time, that isn't going to tarnish, isn't going to discolour, isn't going to bring a different message. This is the one who's unchanging. 
And what of us this Christmas? What of you and I? So Christmas is a great time for rejoicing, for friends and family. For some it can be a sad time. For some people we're reminded of people that are no longer with us. Reminded of people that, that may be passed on at this time of year. Christmas can be sad. Christmas can, in many ways, remind us of our finite and changing nature. Every year we get a little bit older. We're aware that we, as people, change. There's those sad statistics of of how many people will spend Christmas alone. Circumstances change. And so sometimes Christmas can be a joyous time, sometimes it can be a sad time. If we're honest and we say, what would we actually like for Christmas? What would be the gift that most suits us? That most fulfilled our dreams and desires? Maybe it's a gift of just a little bit more certainty. Just a little bit more assurance that things are okay. Because we live in changing times, don't we? That's the scary thing about the moment. Brexit votes, unrest in Russia and Ukraine, uh, more and more people on social care needing support. What's next? What's the next thing that's going to jump out of our newspapers, our TV screens? What's the next thing that's going to cause us to think, oh, that's a changing world. And when we say a changing world, we usually mean changing for the worse. That's you this morning. If all you want, honestly, is a little bit more certainty, a little bit more peace, can I ask you to think about the one who is unchanging? Jesus, the child who came to save us and stuck to that message, stuck to that course. What of this second gift? Frankincense or incense. Well, again, we see this today, 2,000 years after these events. You can pop down to your local supermarket and buy incense sticks and diffusers, uh, scents that, when burnt, give a nice kind of aromatic smell, season the room. And uh, we see this again in the Old Testament. There were instructions given to Moses, who constructed the first kind of tent or the first dwelling place for God, Uh, When the people left Egypt and wandered through the wilderness, God went with them and God dwelt in this great tent that there were very clear rules on how they should assemble it and the practices involved in that. And it says in Exodus 30 there, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacti and onycture, galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt and pure honey. So there were these instructions to, 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 to make this incense that would give a sweet smell uh, to the temple. What does that mean to us 2,000 years later? Again, you might be giving incense sticks as a present. You might receive incense sticks as a present. Candles are always a good gift, aren't they? Scented candles. That's the territory that we're in here. These things that give a nice aromatic smell. What does all of this mean? What's the relevance of this? Well, you see, while Moses was given the instructions on what to do, uh, it was actually the priests 
whose role it was to carry out the ceremonies in the temple, to burn the incense, to make the sweet smell. It was the priests who would come into the presence of God and pray for the people before God. It was their role. And uh, it's this long story that we look at in Scripture about the fact that man had fallen away from God. It's something that we call sin. It's something that we read of right back at the beginning of Genesis, the very beginning in the story of the Bible. But it talks about how God gave instructions to Adam and Eve as to what they were to do and what they weren't to do. Now, if you think about your work situation, I'm sure many of you work at the moment. You have people that you are responsible to. If at work I were not to do what my line manager asked me to do, that would actually have serious consequences. For those of you at university or school, if your teacher or tutor tells you to do something and you don't do it, that has consequences. When people who are over us tell us to do things and we don't, or they tell us not to do things and we do, that usually has consequences. Now, when the person who's over you is actually the creator of the universe... Do you see how there's consequences for not doing what God says to do or doing what he says don't do? And so God gave instructions to Adam and Eve and they disregarded those instructions and that's not something that happened lightly. And so Adam and Eve were banned and barred from the Garden of Eden. It says right again back in Genesis in chapter 3, the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And there's a lot in that verse. We don't have time to unlock all of that this morning. But the point was disobedience to God carried a penalty. It carried a consequence. And actually, it wasn't just being barred from a neat garden called Eden. The consequences of sin, because that's what the Bible calls it, is actually death. That if we choose to go our own way and disregard what God says, that's the end game. That's the end consequence. It's death and it's an eternal separation from God. Now the good news is God wasn't happy with that. God is a just and a holy and righteous God and so what he did was absolutely right. He said, if you've disobeyed my rules, there are consequences. And the story could so easily have ended there. You see, God's a loving God. He cares for his people. He wants to have a relationship with them. And so to heal that rift, we had the role of the priest. And the priest was the one that would come into the Holy of Holies. He would burn the incense. He would carry out these ceremonies so that for a moment, for this temporary moment in the time, he was acceptable before God. And he could come in and he could talk to God and he could pray. And the incense, tradition has it, that the, 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 the smells rising up are the prayers of the people rising up to God. And God would hear those prayers. You see, this just for a moment in time. This wasn't the final solution. What was needed was a permanent priest, a permanent healing of this rift, a permanent joining together of God and man, a, a permanent joining of what sin had broken apart. Because, you see, the gospel is at its heart all about relationships. It's about the relationship that we have 
with God. Richard and Rachel were reminding us of this last week, how we are chemically wired to be in relationships. When something goes wrong with our actual chemical makeup, when we're not relating in social groups with other people. You see, we make this great mistake when we think about the gospel, that we think about the criteria that being right before God is all about us. It's all about what we have done. Are we good enough or not good enough? And we miss the point that it's all about relationships. Does God know you? Does God know you? If I was to wander over to one of those houses over there when we finished this morning and knock on the door, I can't see the number from here, but whatever number it is over there, I'm going to pop over there, I'm going to knock on their door. And I'm going to say, can I come in and have Sunday dinner with you? What do you think the person's going to say? They're going to say, well, well, no. And why are they going to say no? Well, I don't know you. And suppose I was to say, but, but I'm a good person. They would probably say, well, well, aren't you, mate? But I still don't know you. And you see, why do we think that the gospel is any different? That when we stand before God at the end of time, and when we knock on his door, and I trust we want that door to open, and for God to say, come in, good and faithful servant, when we knock on that door, if God doesn't know us, on what grounds do we think the door's going to swing open and he's going to say, come in? I don't know you. It's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. On that day, says Jesus, talking in the Gospel of Matthew, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? It's the cry of the good person. And I will declare to them, says the Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the gospel has never been about what I do. Do I do enough? Do I do it well enough? Am I better than the people around me? The gospel is, does God know you? Are you in a relationship with God? Has a priest, not one of these old priests in this tent back 2,000 years ago, but the priest that is Jesus, because that's what this gift is all about, is the priest, is that eternal priest Jesus taking your hand in one of his hands, taking God's hand in his other hand and said, Father, this is your son, son, daughter, this is your father. Is that the relationship that you have this morning? Because that's the only relationship that counts. Again, John in Revelation says, Then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. You see, we can divide ourselves up by so many ways this morning. Rich, poor, intelligent, not so intelligent. The only division that matters at the end of time is, is your name in the book of life or not? When God opens that book, does he say, ah, I know you. I know you. That's what frankincense is saying to us. It's this gift that talks about the priesthood of Jesus. But you see, standing in the gap, being that priest, standing in the gap between God and man, declaring us in front of the Father, is actually not enough if we're actually still guilty. 
I can actually have the best defence lawyer in the world. I can have the best advocate. I can have the one who gives a compelling argument about who I am. But if I'm guilty, I'm still guilty. And so just speaking on my behalf is not enough. We need this third gift. We need this gift of myrrh that says, how ultimately is this rift healed? How ultimately are man and God brought back together? Because myrrh, well, myrrh is a little bit like frankincense. It is a resin. You do get it from trees in Africa and Arabia. Uh, And again, as, as as a resin, as you burn it, it gives off a sweet smell. But myrrh has another use, a very particular use. Myrrh was used as part of the burial traditions back in those days. Uh, It has a particular quality that it actually absorbs water and so stops decay. Uh, Again, living in a very hot climate, you, you buried people quickly. There were actually rules in Scripture about how quickly you bury them because, quite frankly, dead stuff decays and dead stuff smells. And in a hot climate, it decays quickly and smells pretty tough, pretty rough. So you have myrrh as one of these herbs that you wrap dead bodies in. Uh, when we read um, of, um, in the beginning of uh, Matthew, Matthew 24, we read of the women going to the tomb to complete the burial preparations for Jesus. Jesus had died on the Friday. Uh, Saturday was the Sabbath and you couldn't do any work. Uh, and again, because this was an important thing to do, they rose early on Sunday morning. Not many people would rise early on Sunday morning, but they rose early on Sunday morning to finish that work of wrapping uh, the body with myrrh and with other herbs. And we also read uh, in, uh, about Nicodemus in John. Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. We read about Nicodemus at the beginning of John's Gospel. But at the end here, Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so myrrh symbolises death. Myrrh symbolises someone who would die on our behalf. It's the gift of a saviour. And dare I say it, looking on from the outside, this is an incredibly inappropriate gift to bring. It's a newborn baby. And you're talking about death. Suppose I were to come to you at Christmas and I have some Christmas presents for you. Not... The normal scented candles and diffusers, not even Argos or HMV vouchers. But suppose I was to come and say, I have a voucher for you. It's 50% off at the local funeral directors. It will help you plan financially for your demise. That's my gift of choice for you. Imagine if I was to come to a baby shower with such a gift when we're celebrating the birth of a new child not for me romper suits and baby grows no no I'm going to come with my 50% off the funeral director of your choice do you see how inappropriate this gift seems who would want to talk about death at a time like this who wants to talk about death at Christmas but isn't that just what we must do 
because hanging above the stable is the star, but equally hanging above the stable is the cross. Because in 33 years' time, this baby, this child, will be nailed to a cross for us, for our sins, to complete that task that the priests have given some temporary job at doing throughout history, just momentarily closing the gap between God and man. But here on the cross, now permanently, now for all time, now forever, that gap is closed and God looks at us and sees us as innocent, sees us as clean, sees us as people who can come into his presence and have a relationship with him. That's what this book is all about. This book is about how we discover that relationship. How that gulf between us and God is healed. And isn't that a gift that everybody at Christmas time would want? We've already quoted from Isaiah. It's a well-known prophet. Thousands of years before he said such poignant words as he, again, prophetically looked ahead to these events. Talking of Jesus, the one who was to come, he said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. That just basically means I've done wrong. I've mucked it up. And someone's come along and said, I'll take the consequences of that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Isn't that a comment for our generation? Everyone has gone his own way. Everybody does what he thinks is right. If it's right in my eyes, then surely it's okay. That that has to be a cry for this generation. Who are you to tell me what's right? Who are you to tell me what to do? I've got my own view, my own perspective. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what can I do? to make myself acceptable to God? What's the gift that I can bring? The gold? I haven't got any of that. Is it frankincense? I don't think I've got that. Myrrh? I wouldn't even know where to get that. I can't bring those gifts. You see, the good thing is I'm not asked to. I'm asked to bring myself. I'm asked to come before God and say, God, I can't do this myself. I can't make myself acceptable to you. I can't do anything that says you should love me. But the good news is I don't have to because your son's done that for me. Your son on the cross has taken that price, has paid that price. He's a king. He's a priest. But he's my saviour. I said at the beginning, for many of us, This Christmas story is well known. Many of us here have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and are trusting in him alone rather than in ourselves to bring us to the Father. But maybe this is a new story to you. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this story. Maybe this is the first time you've realised that you may stand before a God responsible for your actions Maybe you've never thought about what it means to be a Christian before. But this is what it means. It means trusting in God alone. Trusting in Jesus to take our punishment. Giving up the uncertainty. Giving up the striving in our own strength that we know is futile. 
and trusting in you. Just foolishness, just foolishness to try and be good before the creator of the universe. It's all about relationships. It's all about being a son and a daughter to a father. This is new to me, if this is new to you this morning. If you just want to find out more about what it means to be a Christian, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I'm just going to say a short prayer now. Just say, just pray under your breath uh, with me. If you're, but if you're praying this for the first time, if you're praying this and meaning it, then please afterwards come and speak to myself, come and speak to Justin, Steve, someone else that you know here, someone even that's brought you, invited you here this morning, so that we can share with you and explain more about what it means to be a Christian. But if you really want to do this with all sincerity, then just again, just do that, just repeat these words as I say them now. Father, thank you for the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. I want to stop trusting in my own goodness and start trusting in him. I know that I can never be good enough in myself to come before you. But I thank you that through Jesus I can have a new life. And the certainty of being with you in eternity. Thank you again for your son and his death on the cross to pay for my sins. Thank you that I'm now free from guilt and free to know you as my father. Amen. If you prayed that prayer again for the first time this morning, then do talk to somebody, do make that fact known so that we can encourage you and pray with you and bless you further. Amen.